0: beginning with verse 14. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him, that is Jesus, over to them that's the Roman guard, to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them up into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it. See whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says in Psalm 22, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldier did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is God's word. Please be seated. This morning, I... I am struggling this morning because this text, every time I read it and every time I look at it, overwhelms me. And it is a daunting task to preach as a sermon this text, and particularly in one sermon. So what I would like to do this morning is invite you, to come with me to see the places to take you with me on a journey to the places that they took Christ as this king was nailed to die on a tree. And I want you to join with me in meditation the Apostle John, the Gospel writer John, who is the one that he calls out? Jesus, it says, on the cross, looked down and seen his mother and the disciple that he loved. That was John. John is the only eyewitness to write his account of what he saw. And he includes certain things. For instance, there Seven sayings, seven last words of Christ on the cross, and John has three of them. and out of those three, none of them are in the other gospels. So he heard certain things that the others didn't hear. He had a perspective that adds to the others and there to his, but Christ, but John, as he saw this passion of Christ he saw things that we need to meditate on and as he presents his gospel account what you're going to see is this is that he did not see a weak dying man striving to his last breath breath to hang on to this life and to die a hero's death on the cross like a martyr on our behalf John saw a king. John saw not a passive man, but he saw a vibrant, active, in control, obedient, prompted by love, son of the Father, active till his dying breath. And his dying breath was not an exhausted, I give up, but a victorious cry, it is accomplished. Or in a word, done. It's done. Not I'm done. It is done. And the it is a king coming after his people to free them. That they might be citizens not of this world, but of his kingdom, the Father's kingdom. That they might no longer be aliens and separated, but that he, this conquering king, is ruling and reigning from that tree. He's not nailed there in weakness, but it's his loving obedience and to the fulfillment of Scripture that he's carrying out his kingly design and his plan. It's hard to preach, but it's not hard to look and with the Gospel writer of John to meditate on these places. Now I want to offer you a challenge. You will be, you'll be overwhelmed also to the point of having a lot of notes, perhaps, but very little to take home in your heart if you don't focus on one place. And don't worry, it's not like I'm trying to do, you see, five points instead of two. It's not like I've got five little homilies, five mini sermons. I'm going to try to get us through these places in a very timely manner and respect for your time this morning. But pick one place. And even if you, if you don't follow me to the other places, either, either follow me in return or just stay there for the remainder of the message. But I want you to pick a place this morning that you're going to take away and you're going to revisit that place. You're going to look again at the, the, the place of the skull or the, the place of the sign. You're going to look again at the, at the place where we see Jesus Christ and the people that are surrounding at the the base of it. There's going to be a place that's going to stand out to you. The place of Scripture. Or perhaps it's going to be the place of the sour wine as we end up at the the table of real wine this morning. But that you'll meditate on that place. You'll find yourself at that place. There's an ancient piece of art. I think it's probably out of the 1300s, that actually shows Christ very graphically bleeding and dying with a crown of thorns on His head on a cross. And the nails in His palms are, are protruding. They're particularly large. And it shows a little cherub from heaven, as it were, like an angel. A cherub, small babe with wings, is touching one of those nails. And it's as if it's just wondering, you know, that nail, how can that nail, how can that nail hold the king of the universe to a piece of wood, a tree? And, and why? How, why and how would the king of the universe die for people? Is there no other way? It's just that he's very inquisitive and he's looking at that nail and he's contemplating. As we go to these places, I pray that you will contemplate and that you will even challenge your old thoughts perhaps, the old myth, the old myth that it was weakness that kept him there. Or the old myth that he was passive and as it says that in verse 16, so Pilate delivered him over and so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross. In other words, that he was just passive and they were just binding him and they were whipping him and they were leading him over here and they were saying stand here and then lay down here and nailing him and putting him up on the cross and then taking him down. That he was just a passive victim. I hope you moved this morning if even inches from that myth to see one that is completely in control, completely following the Scripture's prophecies, completely following the design of His Father to lovingly and sacrificially win back, win back His people that He was separating from in the garden and win them back by paying justice on their behalf. That you'll see a strong King, and not a weak, weak, phony king, as his mockers and opposers thought that he were. He was. So, without further ado, if I were to capture it in a theme, it would be, F.F. F. Bruce says it well, the crucified one. Now remember, to be crucified, no Roman citizen could be crucified. It was too shameful, and it was too painful that if you were a roman citizen and you were going to be crucified it took an act of the emperor caesar himself must validate it and it never happened the crucified one is the true king the kingliest king of all because it is he who is straight stretched naked on the cross He turns an obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory and reigns from the tree. He turns an obscene instrument of torture into a throne. And he reigns. He rules and he reigns from that tree. So the crucifixion, the the passion leading up leading up to the time that he's crucified, and then his being lifted up so that all men can see him, that is his ascent into the throne. Well, that's where we're going. Let's look and see how we can get there. First of all, you see that in uh, verse 17, it says that he, that is Jesus, went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull. Now, John does some things, as I said earlier, that only he will do, and the others do not. He leaves out some things that they include, and he adds some things that they don't include. And here is one of the things that he leaves out. He leaves out Simon of Cyrene. Now, all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, include Simon of Cyrene. They say that Pilate has... He has scourged, that means he has whipped bloody the back of Jesus. His Roman guards have put a cruel thorny crown on Jesus' brow. He has now been still bound. He is being led away. And as he's being led away, they lead him to his first station which is where there will be a crossbeam. He won't carry the full cross because the upright, the vertical post, is going to be at the site of the skull, Golgotha. And so as he's going to the place of the skull, they put a crossbeam on his shoulders because you couldn't carry the whole thing. But then the other Gospels say that as he is... Going that Simon of Cyrene, one of the people brought in for the Passover, a spectator, as it were, that he is enlisted to carry the cross for Jesus. So which is it? Well, we believe that it is both. We believe that Jesus Christ bore the cross beam till about the fifth station which means that he only had a very short distance remaining, and then in the incline, as he's going to this raised cliffs, the the place of Golgotha. Golgotha is Aramaic for skull. We also know it as Calvary. Calvary is Greek for skull, so it's the place of the skull. And we believe it not because there are a bunch of bones laying around, but we believe it, it was just... He's making his way, and it looks like a skull. Kind of like if you go to Grandfather Mountain in North Carolina, that if you get in the right direction and look, you can see it looks you can see the nose, you can see the beard, you can see the face. So here is Christ, and he's moving there, and Simon in the very last leg, is enlisted. But John doesn't include him. Why? Why does he leave it out? Two reasons. Because John, from the very first chapter, and you'll notice in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, hearkening way back, his story of the beginning of the life of Jesus Christ, his narrative doesn't doesn't start in a stable. His narrative starts in the heavens. His narrative starts with creation. That the one who was at the Father's side known as the Word, spoke the world into creation along with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is the divine one. And yet He takes on flesh, He says in chapter 1 of John, and He walks among us. And we beheld His grace and His truth. And He won us to Himself. The theme of the Gospel of John is that here is a man Who always conducted himself as the king that he was. And he is a man with a plan. He is a man who knows his plan. And he is very purposeful. And so even now, John is saying, I'm not going to throw a bunch of, I'm not going to put somebody else there carrying his cross. I want you to see him carrying the cross. I want you to see him bearing that burden. I want you to see him looking ahead to a place that is appearing very dreadful. And then secondly, remember the Gospel of John was written some 50 to 60 years after these very events. And after these events took place, there was a heresy that arose. And the heresy was this. We don't know, but we suspect that his opposers and those that would mock him would begin this heresy, and that was that Jesus didn't die. Jesus didn't bear any cross. Jesus didn't die on the cross. He just kind of faded into obscurity. He just gave up when he saw he was defeated, and he just lived the life of a hermit in the wilderness. You know who died on that cross? There was old switcheroo. That the, the... Simon of Cyrene. They said, here, you take the cross. And then they get right there to the place of the skull. There's a lot of confusion going on. And Simon's like, okay, I'm out of here. No, wait a minute, buddy. And they nail him to the cross, and they put him up there. That's Simon of Cyrene. And then to cover it up, you know those sneaky disciples? They rolled that stone away after three days, and they stole his body. And they said, ah, Jesus is resurrected. And they got rid of Simon of Cyrene you may say, that is the craziest thing. Do you know that the Muslim, do you know that Islam still believes that? There is no crucified Christ in Islam. There is no resurrected Christ in Islam. There is no cross-bearing Christ in Islam. There is no place of the skull that Christ goes to in Islam. It's Simon of Cyrene. And you may say, wow, man, what a heresy. Do you, do you put anything else or anyone else at the place of the skull other than Jesus Christ? You may say, nonsense. But do you put Christ there clearly that He is one that knows a cross? He knows cross-bearing. He knows the skull places in your life and my life. And because of that, fully human. Don't put a divine Christ that felt no splinter, that did not feel that cross on a torn back. Don't don't say, you know what, He's the Son of God, so He's painless. That's another heresy. He felt, He died as a man. Fully God, but fully human. He felt the pain. And He knew, and He walked all the way there given at the fifth station at Simon of Cyrene would come in. Secondly, not so long, you see here that it says that they crucified him and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus right in the middle. Again, only John records that. So here he is, right in the middle of two criminals, thereby t- attesting that he was dying a criminal's death. He's among them. You know, birds of a feather flock together, and look, right in the middle is a criminal. But over his head was a titleless or title that Pilate had instructed to be written. Now, this last week, I uh, found myself in support of a friend in federal court. So, downtown Charleston, you know, Meeting Street. I appear in federal court in support of my friend who is appearing before a federal judge. At the very first of the start of the court, the judge says to each of the attorneys, you know, the the federal prosecutor and to the defense attorney, he says, well, you gentlemen won't mind if at the very start I read what the charges are against this man, what the indictment is, and then I read the guidelines to say what must happen. And I then we can talk about whether he's guilty of the indictment and then what wiggle room we have in these indictments. This is what is happening here is that Pilate is saying, here's the indictment. He's the king of the Jews. And then the guidelines are therefore he must be crucified. He has been tried and he also was put forward for a Mass mob vote and you were voted down. I put him forward and said, Do you want do you want him back? Do you want him as a king? And they said we don't want him as a king. We don't want him as a king. We don't want him as a king. And now in three languages a title over his head is put. He's come to this place now where they would they would they're ready to parade him. They're they're crucifying they would have probably done this early on and someone would have walked in front of Jesus, Father shame with this sign. And as one commentator said, this though shows once again the mysterious, the mysterious providence of God. Because this is the first missionary endeavor outside the borders of Israel. Christ, you know what? Christ couldn't wish for better advertising. You talk about marketing. This is the king of the Jesus from Nazareth. The king of the Jews. No wonder the opposition was upset. And it's in the the national languages that everybody could understand it. If they're Roman, they could understand Latin. If they're very poor, then they would certainly understand the the Aramaic and then the Greek, and they, they would understand these languages. And it would create the buzz and the conversations, the very sign that is above this man. So here you have, on this place, a sign that begs the question, is this, do I read Jesus, King of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, a no, you know, a forgotten little backwater town. As one said, nothing good ever came out of Nazareth. Nobody famous or important or intellectual ever came out of Nazareth. So the Son of God could certainly, and a good rabbi could certainly never come out of Nazareth. When I read that, do I, do I say, do I snarl or scoff and say, Jesus, Nazareth, king of the Jews. In other words, is it like graffiti? Or do I read that and say, gospel, gospel, that's my king. I label him king. I see him bearing that sign. I put that sign on his head. And I would broadcast in my life in various languages, be it verbally, be it my action, be it my prayers, but I would use those three languages to tell others and broadcast that He's my King. Thirdly, Scripture. Oh my goodness. This is, a, this is not a sermon. This place is a sermon series. Can I get you to Mark for further reading, Psalm 22. James Boyce, a number of years ago, wrote an article for Eternity Magazine, which is, I don't think it's, any, it's even published anymore. But he wrote an article for Eternity Magazine, and he made a great case, which I won't make this morning, but he made a great case to say that he was absolutely convinced that Psalm 22 was on Jesus' mind. That Psalm 22 was on Jesus' mind. And that Psalm 22 was being fulfilled before Jesus' eyes and before every observer, even ourselves. And if you look at Psalm 22, which is quoted here in John 19, but Psalm 22, verse 17 and 18. I can count all my bones, they stare, and gloat over me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now earlier in Psalm 22, if you're reading it, and you're going to meditate on it, you can see in verse 1 where it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, further evidence that this was very much on his mind. But here's what's happening. That Jesus Christ, at this point, is nailed to the cross after having been stripped. Now, we don't preach this a lot because of delicate audiences, but hey, you're two rivers. They stare and they gloat. There's two things about nakedness. Neither one which we like. Number one, you're exposed and you're vulnerable. If you're naked... You feel defenseless. Number two, shame. Shame, gloating and staring. At this point, it says in the Scriptures that there are, there's, a, there's a, a small group, a squad of Roman soldiers. And each one, it says, got a piece of his garment. We believe that there were four guards, four of them. And one would have taken the sandals. One would have taken the turban. One would have taken his belt. And one would have taken his cloak that left only his tunic. Remove the tunic and you have a man exposed. But remember, if you're going to dwell at this place, that's my king that is exposed. He has taken my shame he has made himself helpless in my place. And for that fifth piece of garment, is the four, there's four, divided it up, and now they're going to say, well, who's going to get the... We can't, we're not going to cut this tunic into four pieces. Let's see who's going to get this. So they roll the bones, they roll the dice to see by lot who would get it. And this fulfills Scripture written some 1,600 years earlier. This Scripture that was written at the very moment that they're rolling the dice is being fulfilled. And this Scripture was on His mind. I've got to leave this. But can I tell you two things? Number one, Jesus Christ followed the Scripture because He was obedient. He followed the scriptures, because he was obedient, and they were words from his father, and they were words for life and guidance. And we see this often in some scripture. We don't see a legalist saying, "Up, take that! Up, take that! Up, tick that!" But we do see someone saying, "This is so saturated my being that it guides me." It was not mechanical. Number two, you can have that too. The scriptures were his source of strength, and they can be our source of strength. Indeed, it's your only source of strength and guide. It's the only true one. Don't raise Jesus Christ, though he is the king, don't raise him to be so omnipotent at this point that only he is the one to draw strength from the Scriptures. He's a full man. He's human. And if we face things similar to this, this, we will find the similar result. He needed the Scriptures. We need the Scriptures. The Scriptures are true and life and strength. One funny little thing. It says there that his next-to-last words by John are, I thirst. In Psalm 22, verse 15... My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, so I'm dry. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. A thick tongued as if I'm dehydrated. You lay me in the death of dust. At this point, there are folks that say that the reason he said, I thirst again, was that there's, there's sour wine there and there's one of the scriptures that say that they, they gave him vinegar wine to drink. And he drank. And that's an Old Testament prophecy that even here he's saying from the throne, by the way, I'm even going to be obedient to that. Give me something to drink. Complete control. And he's following the scriptures out of loving obedience as a source of strength. And so can we. Those standing. We believe that not only were there four soldiers, but there were four that were standing there that constituted the church. And I really have to move on, but this really speaks loud and clear to two rivers and why community is so important. Can you hear the words of Christ to you personally say, Behold that man over there as family. Behold that woman over there. That's your family. At the cross, everything, the family dynamic is rearranged. At the cross, Jesus Christ looking at his mother who is certainly going to be widowed without Social Security, without a pension, without investments. She's facing destitution. And he turns to John and he says, that's going to become now at the cross... New community is established. Now at the cross, this person who is worshiping me at the cross, who's looking on me with with sadness and yet adoration for what I'm doing, this person who's a part of the church and the fellowship, this person, though unrelated biologically to you, is going to be as close as your mother. This person is going to be as close as your son. You cannot, you, cannot be, you cannot be a snob when it comes to your siblings. First of all, they know you for who you really are. And then you're stuck with them also, and they're stuck with you. But it would be ridiculous to think that those who came from the same mother and father can carry themselves as any better and superior to one another. Jesus Christ says, don't be a snob. Philip Henry, the the father of Matthew Henry. Philip Henry was a a young convert and began to date a gal, and her name escapes me. But her parents, Philip Henry's fiancé, were not Christians. And they didn't know a lot about Philip Henry. And they called their daughter and they said, we don't approve of this relationship. We don't approve of this young man and his, his Christianity. And she says, I can't tell you a lot about where he's come from, and I don't care to know, because I know as he knows where he is going. He's a man that is going someplace, and he's going forward following the king, So I'm going to align myself with him. And she married him. And we got the great commentator and preacher Matthew Henry out of that union. We two rivers are a community. And I pray, not in deference to your own biological families, but I pray that like me, I pray that like me, that you'll come to experience such intimacy and love for one another overlooking shortcomings, quick to show grace and forgiveness, acceptance, embrace, of people that are different from us, that you will say they're as close, if not closer, than my own family. And before I leave this, this is how real learning takes place. Christ really is building His church here. Real learning for me is where I've taken things that I've heard and I've read and I begin to process it in the family of God and through friends. That's why conversations and discipleship and community groups and ministry teams and your participation is so involved, is so important for intimacy with Christ. And then lastly, I want you to see the place of the sour wine. We're told that there at the foot of the cross was a basin or perhaps a bucket, some type of device that held sour wine. Now John speaks of this in a complimentary fashion. The other writers talk about some other things being there at the base of the cross, but John talks about it as being there for the soldiers. You know, they've got a very, very unsavory task, and so they've got cheap, unsavory wine to help ease the stress of the job. Just kind of take the edge off their day and the duties and the responsibilities and the the have-to list that faces them and stresses them. And so, like us, a little sour wine you know assaging my thirst in places that are really inadequate has become a common thing for them drinking out of a out of a drinking not the best wine but finding other resources to just help me manage and jesus christ looks down at that wine and he says i thirst and what he's saying here is very important. He's not simply saying, I will drink to the bitter dregs the wine of damnation or the wine of judgment that was reserved for you. But he's saying something more and it's a little subtle. Only John includes this. And it's subtle because of this reason. It's not physical thirst that he's solely talking about. And it's not simply to fulfill the scriptures here. There's another psalm that he must have had on his mind, and that's Psalm 42. And there in Psalm 42, he says, like that deer that pants for water, I pant for you. I pant for for meeting and being and having intimacy with God, which at this moment he is separated from. That's what I thirst for. That's what I'm thirsty for is that union with God that is torn from me now. And having said that, they lifted it up on a hyssop. The very hyssop was used for, you know, ceremonial cleaning. Hyssop was what they would use to paint at the Passover the door post, the lentils with the blood. So they, he'd only be about head high, okay? Christ's lips, I mean, the cross would only be about head high. So they didn't have very far to go. they just give him a little sip. But he would, take, he would taste that sour wine. He would, he would taste completely being separated from God on the cross. And you may say, now wait a minute, Phil, that's a little far-fetched. Let me tell you why it's subtle. Here is one that has been tied. He has been beaten. He has been spit upon. He has had crown of thorns placed upon his brow. He has had nails driven through his hands that raw back would have been against that wood. And he's dying. Not once did he say Oh, my aching head. Not once did He say, Oh, my sore hands. Not once did He say, My feet. Oh, my back. Not once. So why thirst? It must be something more than simply raw physical thirst. It's a thirst that cannot be satisfied until he meets with God again. Until he has that intimacy. And at this table... He offers us wine at this table to communicate that we meet with God here, we meet with God in our life through Him who was separated from God. He took the sour wine and He gives us His lifeblood as a real wine. And I pray as you prepare your heart now to come to this table that you thirst for that. There's not, you're not going to take enough in this cup to satisfy your physical thirst But the taste of this real wine will be enough, I pray, to satisfy your soul's thirst for your union with God that is promised by this king's reign on the tree. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, leaving my sour wine addictions aside, I would taste from this table the bread of Your torn body on my behalf, and I will taste this wine or juice, your shed blood, as the real wine that satisfies my soul, as it communicates my union, my meeting, my being with you, God my Father, inseparably, and that forever, through the forgiveness and the pardon of my sins, by the work of Christ. And this I pray in Christ's name.